Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tourpreneur. I am particularly excited about this one because it's sort of like a visit to the doctor. By the end of it, we're all going to feel better or worse, depending on the diagnosis. And today, we're not talking to a doctor, but to a lawyer, Jeff Ment of Ment Law. He specializes in the wild and weird world of tour operators. And so I'm really excited to dial into all of the problems and quandaries that we as tour operators end up having in our day-to-day business and get some clarity on some uh, well-trodden questions I'm sure that Jeff has heard in the past. So first of all, Jeff, a huge welcome to Tourpreneur. Thank you for having me. It's a great day to be here to talk about travel, which there's no better time because travel is happening and all of our clients, thankfully, are busy. It is busy and buzzing out there. Jeff, I wanted to start by asking you if you could just give us a little rundown of who you are, what you do. So my travel world started at the age of 14, working at my mom's travel agency, and it hasn't stopped. I'm 55, so I have about 41 years in the travel industry either as a travel agent, a tour guide, or a area sales manager for uh, gone but not forgotten Eastern Airlines and Continental Airlines. And I am a graduate of the University of Miami Law School uh, from 1992. So that would put me in my 30th year of uh, providing good, solid, sound legal advice to travel companies. One One thing that's certain is that many in our audience already avail themselves of your services because you are not only one of the best, but also a rare bird in which you specialize in travel law. Tour operators are a strange breed. I'm wondering how you got involved in this sort of niche of law. So I always, like most of you in the travel world, once it's in your bloodstream, for better or worse, it doesn't get out. It stays in there for life. And that's how my life will go. I've been a travel guy. My dad's a judge. My mom was a travel agent. So I became a perfect blend of the two as a travel lawyer. And tour operators were really my first set of clients. Um, Some of my original cases going back decades now were for some of the world's largest tour operators that everybody on this call uh, knows and has heard of. And uh, I was really fortunate to get uh, some early cases, and um, I applied to be an associate member of USTOA a long time ago, and my sponsor was Jeffrey Kent. So nobody asked me any other questions. They said, if Jeffrey Kent is sponsoring you, we'll let you into our club. And uh, 
I find myself here in 2022 doing about the same thing that I did in, in the uh, decades that have passed. From Jeff Kent to Jeff Ment passing the baton. I know. The, 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 the short name, the, the four letters, each of first and last name. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm very lucky. I've had a great career. I've met some phenomenal people in travel. And some of the most interesting people I meet now are people who are new in travel, turning to travel, opening tour companies, opening day trip operators, because people see that travel is really a great place to land and start a career. So a lot of my new clients are people who say, hey, I want to be a tour operator. I want to start a travel business. And that's exciting to be in from the ground floor. You read my mind this sort of period of the last few years has made a lot of people start to question the decisions they've made about their life, about about whatever their jobs were or the way their life worked and starting a tour business, guiding, leading travel experiences around the world, whatever you end up doing has been a really uh, uh, fresh and new endeavor for people in the last, um, in the last couple of years. I've, 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 I've like you, I've, I've worked with so many businesses getting started. And speaking of that, you know, as we get started in this conversation, I know this could go in a lot of different directions, but I really want to get some clarity on some basic things. One is on the role of a travel industry lawyer. So let's say you've got an accountant, you've got your insurance guy, and you've got a lawyer. Is there a way that we can kind of disambiguate and understand why we would be calling you and not, say, picking up the phone to our tax guy or to our insurance woman? Yeah, I think so. The world of uh, law and travel is very intertwined because travel companies, a traditional tour operator has, uh, if you picture a guy standing in the middle or a woman standing in the middle, on one side of your customers and on the other side of your suppliers and vendors, and you wanna have good sound legal defenses to claims that either side may raise against you. And so I think it's important to protect yourself. The lawyer's job at the end of the day is to make sure your business is set up right and that you're protected as best as possible, which is different than a sure thing or a 100% promise, because we can't. We can just do um, the best we can. Um, everybody knows a lawyer. Uh, everybody's got a connection to somebody who happens to be a lawyer somewhere. The reason you want to talk to somebody who knows the industry is because, first of all, you'll get better advice. Uh, second of all, it should be cheaper because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We understand the common issues. They all might have a slight difference, one shade or another. But in general, the world of travel law is a great niche area of law. And about literally 10 to 12 of us in the country specialize in it. We have a special secret club. We get together every March for dinner in Fort Lauderdale and we tell travel law stories. Super exciting. That is great. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. It's similar to tour operators. We're uh, all going to be meeting at arrival very soon and sharing war stories of our experience. Um, let's 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 set our sights on this new business owner um, to start with. What 
are the kinds of legal things that they should be thinking about in terms of having them set up correctly to provide that protection, as you said, in the early stages of their business? So the first good piece of advice is that the barrier to entry is very low in the U.S. to start a travel company. So almost anybody can start a travel company. Uh, any good travel company should start with a, a business formation. And of course, the simplest, the, the one that we think of most often is the limited liability company. So you should set up a limited liability company in the state where you are, or if you're from another country, we can set it up in a, in a state here, despite you being from someplace else. And that really is step one. Step two is typically getting a federal uh, uh, EIN number, employee identification number, because that's going to be important. Step three would be uh, creating terms and conditions or booking conditions or contract terms for your customers. Uh, step four might be uh, vendor agreements for the companies that you're going to deal with. Step five would be ensuring that you have uh, good and adequate errors and omission insurance. And then you're probably ready to start selling. Uh, you, you probably have a good plan in mind with what your area, your focus is going to be. And uh, once you've kind of crossed off those, I'd call them administrative steps, uh, the sky's the limit. It's time to sell. Do you need any special licenses as a travel business in specific states or anything unique to our industry as a travel business? So we have good news and bad news about that. In general, not too much, uh, but we do have four states, California, Florida, Washington State, and Hawaii. Those are four out of 50. So 46 places, it's pretty easy. Uh, four states have laws uh, in place on the books requiring a seller of travel to be licensed in order to sell travel to the residents of those four states. That could be a podcast all by itself on the seller of travel states, but they're all different. The rules are different for each one. The requirements are different for each one. The definition of selling travel is different for each one. And I give, uh, as a lawyer, uh, my job is to tell you what the law says. And then my second job is to counsel you on what you should do about that. So the law says you should. And then the counseling part says, well, you probably should, but maybe it's not going to be the first thing you do, because let me tell you more about what the seller of travel rules really mean. Because once you take that leap into the seller of travel ocean, you're going to be getting surety bonds. You might be opening other bank accounts. You might be registering your business in those four states. And it might not be the most important part of getting your business up and running. Are there any uh, restrictions or concerns that an operator has being based in a specific state and doing business in other states beyond seller of travel in terms no. of no? No. Um, footnote for California. We all know on this call that California is a unique and different place for lots of reasons, good and bad. But if you're a travel company with offices in California, we have to have a more serious conversation about the California seller of travel because it has another arm to it, which is called the Travelers uh, Consumer Restitution Fund. And that's a separate part of California that you have to pay into 
if your business is located in California. So California people deserve a little extra attention because the rules are slightly different and uh, a little bit convoluted there. Moving swiftly along to the yeah. next topic. Uh, that, that's, that's great to know, though. You'd mentioned uh, terms and conditions, privacy policy, uh, those types of those types of things. What are what are the ingredients of that? What makes that so important? Is that essentially your your main liability shield? Yeah, that that is the the uh, the the zone of protection, the cocoon that you're going to build around yourself, so that you can try to avoid trouble coming back at you. You can avoid claims by customers that something went wrong. You can avoid uh, someone saying, well, you didn't tell me I needed a passport to go to another country and I want my money back because my boarding was denied. Uh, nowadays, of course, you, you should include language about the new world we find ourselves in. Things change by the moment, entry requirements, exit requirements, whether uh, certain attractions are going to be open or closed. Um, putting it all in your terms and conditions allows you to say, I already told you that. Didn't you read it when you checked the box that said, I agree to your terms and conditions? So it really creates the contract between you and your customer. It's a legally binding, lawful contract entered into between the travel company and the traveler as to who's responsible for what. And that's why it's a really important foundation for your business. Would you say, let's say I've got X amount of money to spend on the formation of my business. I know we know, we all know that so much of this can be done sort of DIY on your own. You can create your LLC. What would your advice be for where you put that initial amount of money when hiring a lawyer or a professional? Uh, would it be in your terms and conditions in some of those it, contracts? It is. It is. Really, the where you where you must spend your money is on the terms and conditions and the E&O insurance. Uh, you're right, Mitch, you can do an LLC on your own. You can figure it out. It's not that expensive. It's hard to make a mistake when you do it. So it's, it's relatively um, user-friendly. Some states are a little more difficult, but predominantly uh, you can figure out how to do your own LLC. You probably don't need an accountant for um, this assessment, but if you are a multi-member multiple people going in together on a business. It's a little bit more involved. Uh, once you get to the multi-member LLC, you're coming closer to the, should I be a corporation versus an LLC, S Corp, C Corp. Once you're throwing those letters around, you need somebody to help you. If you're having a conversation about S or C corporations, you should be having it with somebody besides yourself. <laughs> if it starts with L, let it go. If yeah, it's S and C. L, L, you're okay. S and C sound a little more challenging because they lead to the other letters IRS. So I think you want to <laughs> stick with stick with what's good for you. But as you get bigger or you have more people or you have people investing in your business, then you probably find yourselves uh, talking about a corporation. I'm going to add to those letters E and O, errors and omissions insurance. And, you know, this is a this is a funny thing because we have a lot of questions in our community around insurance, around what it actually does. And I know a lot of, well, I know a lot of operators who operate without 
insurance, but also ones that operate with basic business insurance, the ones that get advertised uh, when you search for it on Google. And I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, what does tour operator insurance demand its own product? And is it because of the uniqueness of our, of our business? And how should we approach yeah. insurance? So uh, here in the US, we have two insurance companies that really focus on selling to our community. Uh, most people already know that's Berkshire Hathaway and Aon. Those two companies offer a very similar product to travel agents and tour operators and other people in the industry because they offer what's a combination of a general liability policy and a professional liability policy. And the reason that it's, it's a good arrangement is if you had to buy each of those policies separately, you'd clearly be paying more than the premium you're paying for this combined policy. So I think that this is a really important topic because a tour operator typically puts together pieces of a trip and builds a trip. That's a tour. Different components are put together. Tour operators typically can only make a mistake if they have a bad selection of a component. So if you pick a bad part, it might be the bad part that causes the problem, but your problem might be that you picked the bad part. That's a professional judgment. That's your professional liability E&O policy. Now, let's use the example of a, a day trip or a day adventure provider, and you're taking someone down a, a rocky a uh, slightly unsafe sidewalk or, a, or a, a, along a canyon and somebody falls and they say, I fell and got hurt and it's your fault because you didn't warn me of the difficulty walking down this path. That's a general liability claim. That's not a professional liability. That's just good old fashioned general liability and negligence. And the policy with those two companies protects you um, under both examples. Errors and omission insurance is vital, but it is not the be all and end all to your trouble because there are certain things that will never be covered under those policies. And I urge everyone, no one will, but I do urge you to try and read the exclusions in your policy to know what's not covered because people are, are often surprised when a, a claim is made or something comes up and you say, well, I'll send it to my E&O company. And you get a letter back saying, well, we don't cover that. Um, I think you need to have a good grasp of what's in or out of coverage. That could be a separate podcast. But it's another important one about errors and omission. And the, the easiest example, this will resonate with everyone. If you had a customer in the pandemic who did not get a refund for some reason, and they brought a lawsuit against you for the failure to refund, that is not covered by E&O insurance because disputes over refunds are excluded. So that's a good, perfect example that I think everyone can probably uh, relate to. I don't know what you're talking about. Was there any recent events that caused a slew of refunds? <laughs> You know, we haven't had a day off since March of 2020. <laughs> Law Group. We could uh, use a couple, but we've been pretty busy since since March. 
uh, just that comment gave me the chills. Um, you've now essentially evoked three separate podcasts that we have to do in addition to this. And so I think at the end of this, I'll probably find your find out what your hourly rate is and see if Tourpreneur can afford you More for a regular. Keep on talking. Yeah. <laughs> You're good at it. You're so slow and measured. I, I understand. Um, that's really great, though, to break down professional, general, and errors and omissions and how they're different. That's a fantastic advice. Now, one question that comes up a lot is why do we introduce this third entity, which is a waiver or a disclaimer that we're having them sign? Why don't we just put it in our terms and conditions? And how do we know when something warrants or merits a waiver? So you could do it both ways most often. So most often you can have a waiver or disclaimer embedded in your mm -hmm. terms and conditions. I like to think of it as kind of like the hierarchy of risk. So if you're an activity provider with a relatively low risk, let's say a food walking tour in Miami, the risks are relatively low. If, however, you're uh, operating a parasailing or jet ski operation right down the road in Key Biscayne, your risks are suddenly exponentially larger than the walking food tour. Mm -hmm. So those are probably going to be different companies that are going to have different risk and different uh, reasons to want waivers signed. Um, a waiver can be in terms and conditions. That's clearly lawful and would be upheld almost all of the time. But you're worried about the time when it might not be upheld. And it's for those reasons that companies at the top of the, the risk chart uh, will often have a separate waiver that they're going to want signed on the day of the adventure uh, or the activity, which is completely fine. And it also may be a requirement of their particular insurance company. So some riskier activities that are insured are going to have their own set of uh, underwriting requirements that are going to require a waiver to be wet ink, actually signed by somebody uh, before they participate. Footnote on this topic of waivers, if you're uh, having minors under the age of 18 participate in an activity and you're having the parent sign a waiver, you should know that in at least half of our 50 states, that's not enforceable. That a waiver signed by a parent for a minor is not enforceable under, I guess, some pretty good solid legal thinking of, did the kid really make a valid knowing waiver? Probably not because the, the, the minor just thought, hey, I wanna go on that jet ski and it looks really fun. That's why you'll see a lot of companies have minimum age for uh, riskier activities. It's not because a 17-year-old couldn't ride the jet ski as well as the 18-year-old, but it's because the risk is so much different between that one year. That is absolutely fascinating. And uh, when we talk about some of those things, like those risks slipping on a crack on a walk-in tour, do you need to be extremely exhaustive in those documents? Or are some of those commonplace, this could happen anywhere in any sort of activity? Uh, is, do, does that need spelling out? So I think that the best waivers are the ones tailored for what's actually happening. And the worst waivers are the ones that talk about drowning in the desert 
Like if, if you're going on a pink Jeep tour in Sedona, Arizona, your risk of drowning is relatively low. But yet people use these one size fit all waivers that have a hundred things listed, 50 of which are completely inconceivable to happen on that trip. And so, you know, a judge, some judge somewhere, someday wearing a black robe, sitting up above the courtroom, looking down upon you and analyzing your waiver might say to you, Miss, Mr. Bach, I don't understand. You're talking about drowning and all these other problems. And it's very confusing because this person was going on a Jeep tour in the desert. And you could find that because of its uh, ambiguous nature or not being directed to the point of the activity, you actually could find that waiver not being enforceable because judges look very, um, uh, well, they, they look favorably on the right to have a waiver. So that's good. But they do not look favorably upon waivers that are poorly drafted because the law everywhere holds the drafter accountable for the waiver, not the recipient. And if it's confusing and the person says, wow, it was three pages and only on the bottom of page three did it say my Jeep might have an auto accident, you might find it not to be enforced. So do your waivers to fit your business model, not to fit somebody else's business model because you found it online. Before we get a little bit more niche in some of our topics, I was wondering if there's anything that I've missed that forms, I guess, the core of your practice with uh, the majority of tour operators. Um, I think we've hit on like the major topics. Uh, there are some there are some topics that I think are becoming more talked about, like trademarking with travel companies wanting to be uh, protecting their intellectual property a little better. So that's the only one that we haven't hit on yet that I think is at least worth a few moments of time for people to consider. Yes or Abs no. Absolutely. Sort of part two of this is going to be a speed fire round of questions that came in from our community in preparation for this. I very specifically only opened this to our Facebook group about an hour before recording this, because if I leave it open for any longer, it will be 9,000 questions, I'm sure. So, uh, one of them, however, was around intellectual property. First of all, of course, trademarking your brand. But second of all, then the IP of your tours, the intellectual property right to the tour content that you've created that uh, uh, Joe from down the road decides is going, he's going to take your tour, copy it, and then go start a tour. This is like a, a core existential fear of so many tour operators. Yeah, it's a real fear because it's, it's almost impossible to simply protect the intellectual property of a seven-day tour from San Francisco to Los Angeles because a lot of it is going to be pretty obvious of where you're going to stop and what you're going to do. So you can... It is hard to get any kind of intellectual property legal right over your itinerary because that's something that's out in the public domain and it's uh, theoretically equally uh, designable by, by anybody. So you will have trouble uh, getting that. Things that you can try to gain some uh, intellectual property rights on would, of course, be your name, 
your logo, your tagline. Um, those three at least are things that you can try to grab onto and protect uh, through the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, patents are a sort of a separate topic, and that's not as common in what we do in selling travel uh, because most of this would not be patentable. But clearly, we do trademarking stuff every day. Is that part of what you do in your practice for travel brands? It is because people want to try to get that special couple little letters, TM or the R with a circle around it, or the service mark or the trademark, because they're trying to gain a competitive edge over other people. Uh, our industry, obviously, uh, if you think about it, a lot of the names are really close and similar to each other. Uh, there's only so many words you can use to describe uh, curated and boutique and luxury. So you're not able to trademark things that are just too generic. So if you think that something's going to be like, uh, like if I owned um, the best travel agency, comma, LLC, uh, the U.S. Patent Trademark Office is going to say, no, you're not going to be able to get a patent on um, the best travel agency, LLC, but you may be able to get a trademark on something that is more uh, descriptive of what you're actually doing. So it is important to make sure that you're not infringing on somebody else's um, name, right? So if you're opening a travel business or a tour operator, I guess we sort of overlook that. You should make sure it's a good name, right? You need to make sure that the name of your business isn't trademarked by somebody else. Because the last thing you want to find out is you got a letter from a lawyer that says you need to change your business name because you're infringing on the intellectual property rights of, you know, some other travel company. So you do want to, you do want to, that's why there's, you know, one talc. There's not other talcs out there because talc is protected. It's brand. And that's why, you know, talc of California is not going to open and be competing with talc as a simple example. So I'm thinking of, for example, uh, Teresa Nemitz, who runs Milwaukee Food Tours. Is that a trademarkable entity? Milwaukee Food Tours would be three words that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office might say is not trademarkable because the word Milwaukee and the word food and the word tours are not specially uh, connected to just her business. Now, you might be able to trademark the logo so that someone couldn't open up a competitive company using the same logo. Uh, you can try to get Milwaukee Food Tours trademarked, and you'd have to show that you've been using it in commerce for a long period of time, that it means something specific to um, consumers and users of that uh, service. And it's not, it, it, not going to be the easiest one in the world to get, but you might be able to pass it through. Depends on a super technical uh, legal talk on trademarks involves the different classes that you're trying to get it trademarked for whether you're trying to get it trademarked to put on a shirt because she gives out shirts to everyone, that might be something that's trademarkable. And if Teresa's listening, hello, I haven't talked to you in a long time and I hope you're well. Um, but yeah, that, that's a name that is more difficult. Now, if you, if you tried to come up with words that were a little more uh, descriptive just beside the word food, you know, maybe then you're going to have an easier time trademarking it.
Teresa just randomly popped into my head and I just looked on her website and there is a little TM next to it, Milwaukee food and city tours. So yeah. So that's something besides just a food tour. That's something Mm -hmm. that would give her something different than just, Hey, food, Milwaukee and tour. So let's complicate things a little bit now by going abroad. Do you work with businesses in Europe, the UK, uh, other parts of the country or world? Yeah. So world? usually the first part of my day, every day is spent talking to my European friends because it's like lunchtime for them uh-huh. and breakfast time for me. It's the and worst. So I did you that know, this morning. My two tourpreneur partners are both in Scotland. And so we will have 6 a.m. team meetings, which is lunch for them and pre-coffee for me. Well, as I told my two clients um, in the UK this morning, I said, you know, I want to certainly offer my condolences for the Queen's passing because obviously very sad. But on the other hand, it's wiped out all of the news of the US over here. So we haven't had to watch and listen to our usual news because now we're just watching what's happening in London, which for us is actually more interesting and more exciting. So I do have a large uh, list of European and UK clients. It's funny how you have to call out UK separately now, right? You you just can't talk about European. It's UK and European. Um, And Ireland. And they're very, in Ireland. Yeah, that's definitely separate. Um, (laughs) They have unique legal issues in Europe that they don't have here. So I have a lot of clients that go both ways across the ocean. For the companies that are coming uh, to the U.S. across the pond, as they would say, it's a lot easier of a transition than for U.S. companies going to Europe because the laws in Europe relating to tours, in particular tours, package travel, is a lot more uh, regulated than in the U.S., mainly by virtue of the EU and UK's adoption of the package travel directive, uh, commonly abbreviated by the letters PTD, package travel directive. And it really uh, tightens the, the noose around the neck of a tour operator, mainly with respect to refunds and what they're guaranteeing. So when companies come this way, They breathe a a sigh of relief that the noose is loosening and they're able to truly bargain and contract more openly than they are in Europe. Okay, so let's let's put it this way. I'm a multi-day tour operator with an LLC here in the United States in Delaware or Texas or whatever. Uh, When I'm taking my group over to Italy, to France, Am I needing local tour operator licenses in those countries? Mm. Uh, or- well, you're, you, you picked on Italy in your example. So Italy, of course, has separate laws relating to licensed uh, guiding. Yeah. So in Italy, the answer would be, yeah, you do need someone of, uh, with a licensed guide to offer those tours. Uh, if you had left that out of your – was that a trick? Well, I know it's complicated there, and so okay. I thought I'd throw it, throw it in there. You could have picked a lot of the other countries where um, there's really no restrictions on your ability to to bring guests to it. And you don't have to have like a step on license guide from a particular city like you. You certainly would not be a U.S. LLC uh, taking your your guests around Florence if you were not a licensed Italian. uh, Sure. 
guide. So you need to make sure you've got a vendor relationship with a local licensed guide in Florence or Venice or Yeah, Rome. you're going to use the DMC. You're going to be, be connected to someone in that example. Um, I mean, travel companies should stay in their lane, right? I mean, I, I'm a big believer that the, the more you try to diversify what you do and you, you, you start to do it less well, the further out you get. So if you're a tour company in the U.S. and you've been doing day trips around the U.S. or excursions around the U.S. and you want to break out and start to do international travel, I think that's great. You should. But you should also make sure you're doing it right by at least initially rounding up a DMC in country or an inbound operator to talk to about what are the laws to run a trip there. There's been a recent wave, not only in our group, but in the industry of influencers. Say I'm a, I'm a YouTuber that is selling a new, a packaged travel experience uh, to my audience. I'm not really a tour operator, but I am selling a trip. And let's say I'm working then with another tour operator to offer the white labeled service of really operating that trip. Me as that say seller of record let's say i'm the one doing the sale and making that making that relationship with my with my guests even though i'm farming out all of the operations of that am i am i required for tour operator to have tour operator insurance to have anything that's protecting me besides my basic llc yeah so um i would say no i would say that you would not do that but i would say that you would have in your contract with the travel company an indemnification provision that would protect you, the influencer, for claims that might be made against you. So I have a lot of clients like this. Uh, 20 years ago, I had zero, right? I had zero <laughs> clients that were influencers, that were white labeling stuff to go anywhere. Um, but since I have kids that are teenagers and millennials, I understand that this is how the world works now. And we're going to go with an influencer because uh, he or she's going to drag me to take photos in the desert or something. Um, so yeah, so if you're the influencer, you want to have a contract that talks about how this trip is going to be run. And you're going to ask for indemnification from the travel company. If you're the travel company, you're going to want a contract with the influencer that holds the influencer to what they're supposed to do, which is market and get the people. And so that becomes... Um, again, not to get too far into the weeds because they're, they're wet and sticky, but, um, you know, room drop and attrition provisions in a hotel contract in a deal with an influencer, you got to make sure that the influencer knows what the dates are by which they've got to market the trip and get the people. Because you, if you miss that room drop and you didn't, you didn't drop and then they didn't sell to enough people who, you, the tour company, have now wound up owing a hotel a bunch of money for um, unused rooms. But I think that's a very interesting. That's actually a, a large and growing uh, segment of travel is when uh, companies are partnering with influencers, other social media people, TikTokers who can bring the traveler to the travel company. So you don't have to spend that marketing money on selling travel, yeah. but you're going to share the profits of the trip. And your contract with the influencer should clearly delineate how the profit is going to be calculated. 
it's such a huge growing and tangly set of weeds because the relationships look very different. One, one basic question, does it matter who in that relationship is the merchant of record? Let's say if it's the influencer taking the money uh, or that white labeled operator? Uh, well, it does matter on chargebacks, clearly, but it, it's hard to imagine an influencer being a merchant of record because they're typically not going to have the capacity to be accepting credit card. Now, well, I, I, I will say, though, with certain companies like Yuli and We Travel, they sign up, they form yes. an LLC, and they, they start taking those payments. Yes. Uh, the question there is, who's the merchant of record? Is it We Travel that's the merchant of record, or is it the influencer? Because typically, it's going to be We Travel, which is another great company. So if you're thinking <laughs> about working with We Travel, uh, Jeff Ment, thumbs up to We Travel. Uh, Use like code Ment. Ment. <laughs> Men sent you for 10% off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my, but I do like We Travel. Um, yep. I've done some uh, webinars with them. And uh, I think that the travel company probably needs the control over the money because the travel company is on the hook with the contracts for the suppliers. And you don't want to take a chance that you don't get that money. Because the influencer is not going to have his or her name on the hotel or the motor coach or the the group air that you've um, that you've been holding. So I think you, the travel company, should get the money. Great. So let's now switch into part two, which is our rapid fire session to finish this off. And I know this is probably actually a frustrating episode for most people because they have one issue that pertains to them that they want us to talk on for the next three hours. But this has been invaluable just to get your insights and in some of these uh, very thorny and regular questions that we get in our community. So I want to, uh, I'm just going to ask you these questions and we don't need to solve them completely, but it's great to get your brain uh, sort of responding to uh, some of these questions. First up, what really makes your guide or a person an employee and not a contractor? And control. 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 Yeah. I mean, um, when you look at the different uh, indicators of um, independent contractor versus employee, again, I think California has to be a separate discussion because the, the rule is different there under AB5 and who's an independent contractor. But in general, control remains the most important factor looked at by most um, government uh, regulators, including the IRS and other departments of labor around the country. Who's controlling the person's activities? What um, is there a is there a set of sort of criteria that really you can look at and say, oh my I, gosh, I my there, guide should be an employee? I think there's probably a moving target list of the top 10 to 12 things that uh, you would be thinking about, about uh, is somebody an independent contractor or an employee? Again, it only becomes a problem when somebody claims they've been misclassified. So the government doesn't usually come find you. They come find you because somebody said, hey, I'm running this tour. I'm working 12 hours a day and they pay me a hundred dollars a day to be a tour guide and I'm making a dollar 20 an hour. Okay. Well, that's the kind of situation where you may find yourself being investigated for a misclassification and an underpayment of hourly wages. So treat your people well, if you're calling them independent contractors, because they really do control 
what might happen to you. Um, so control, uh, pricing, the opportunity to work or not work on a day that you want them to work, the opportunity to work for a competitor, whether things are scripted, whether things are uh, let, you know, hey, you're going to give these guys a tour of Manhattan. Why don't you cover the important places? Have fun. Sounds kind of independent. Uh, versus you're going to do a tour of Manhattan starting on this corner, then walking here, then going to this place at lunch, then meeting this guy to tell his story of living in the Lower East Side. And then you're going to take this bus or this subway. That sounds pretty controlling about how the day is going to go. Whether or not the, um, uh, let's call him person X, because they might be an employee or an independent contractor. So if X has his or her own LLC set up, that's a good starting point that they may be an independent contractor because they've got their own business set up and they're able to deduct expenses against their own business. Um, if you're paying everyone's expenses, it's going to start to look a lot more like an employment situation. If you have a contract term of engagement, hey, this is a one-year independent contractor agreement that has a non-compete provision that you can't go work for a competitor of mine, you probably would start to wonder if that's really independent. You're restricting their time. You're restricting who they can go work for if they're not working for you. And nine out of 10 times, that's not too independent. That's an employment situation. Great. Next, let's say you're a boat operator and you have 20 large boats. Are there legal strategies for protecting expensive assets that are part of your business, like trusts or? Yeah, you, right. You don't have to own them in your business. So they may not be owned by your business. You may have an, a different LLC set up for that so that you're trying to separate the assets out. Now, you, for this to make any sense, we have to really be talking about valuable something more than I have a jet ski. So the guy with five jet skis is probably not going to create an LLC or an ownership trust of his jet skis. But if you're getting more, uh, more and more complicated and you're a helicopter company and you've got five helicopters, uh, yeah, you might want to create separate entities that own the helicopters versus the tour company to try to keep it separate. Next question. If I, let's say I'm an operator in France and I, I have um, tours that I've grown to lead in Germany, in Spain, in uh, uh, Switzerland, I'm not naming Italy, and I want to pay those guides as employees in each of those uh, different countries, and I'm a French company, is there an easy, uh, the question asker says, also low-cost way hmm. of doing that that doesn't get difficult? No, no. So that... that I wish I had a good, quick yes, no answer on that one. That is actually more complicated because that has to do with the tax structure of the country where the guide lives and where and how they have to be paid and whether or not you have tax obligations on your own. So that one I'm going to have to kind of punt on because that is a more difficult question that I don't think I could just give you. Um, I, I certainly cannot tell you that that's an easy one. Just pay them and hope for the best. That would be the wrong answer. Uh, when money's in, when money's involved, things get sticky. Yeah. 
next next question. So there's a lot of informal advice in our community, uh, especially around, um, let's say, your relationship with an OTA and advice to say, yeah, in the contract, it says uh, you're not allowed to price your tour lower than what is online or things. There's a lot of not maybe shady, but informal legal advice that goes around on base, you know, on a, on a kind of a daily level. Is there you know, is there a rule of thumb or any advice you have besides talk to a lawyer every single time and thinking about risk with some of this advice? Yeah, I, I actually think that you don't need a lawyer as much as you think you might need a lawyer. I think you need the lawyer to help get you up and running. And when you're entering into contracts, I, I do think you have to be cautious when you're entering into some of these uh, contracts with platforms or aggregators or uh, not going to offer something lower in the public space. Um, you need to at least make sure that you've protected your ability to run your business, that you're not selling your soul to someone else and then finding yourself uh, really restricted in what you can do. So you certainly are going to be hesitant. You still might do it, but you're going to be hesitant to be restricted in how you can sell through other platforms. Um, obviously when the platform gets you, they don't want you to offer your product on a competing platform for a lower price like that. You're going to have to agree to, but whether you're agreeing to restrict your sales only through one channel, you, you, you may not want to do that. What's, what's some of the worst case scenarios or scenarios to think about in terms of, uh, I guess, a maybe a guide, a guide's misbehavior affecting your liability as a company. They're outside of the bounds. Yeah. Uh, let's, you know. Right. The risk is that the, um, the guide looks like he or she is your agent because the guide is guiding your tour. So a fair interpretation in the law is that that person's your agent. And so when that person offers a side uh, excursion that has nothing to do with your tour, or they recommend that someone go someplace and do something, you, the company, might bear the brunt of the risk if something goes wrong. I mean, there clearly have been cases. There was a case um, in Egypt where uh, some people were, were killed um, because they had gone off for dinner at, at a family's hut. It had been recommended by the guide. It had nothing to do with the tour. It wasn't part of the tour. They weren't supposed to do it. And tragically, they were killed um, as part of going, going off to this dinner. And the tour company was sued. And the issue was whether or not really the guide had gone rogue. You know, was the guide doing something so, so crazy to cut the link between the company and the guide? And if it's something that like seems like it might fit, like, hey, this is a place I recommend for dinner, you might be stuck with that because that's not necessarily so unusual. But if the guide says, oh, I want you to go over and do some cliff jumping over there. And, you know, you don't know anything about the safety of the cliff jumping. You are going to have a less of a likelihood of being responsible. But yes, your guides are going to make or break every case. Because when we have a, a, a legal case, typically there's only one person that was on, on site or on the scene, and that's your guide. So when tour companies are doing hiring and retention of guides, in addition to are they a good guide, think in your mind, 
how is this person going to look sitting in the courtroom defending my company? Because what that person has to say about what happened is probably more important than what you have to say sitting back in your, you know, your corporate or company office uh, far removed from where the accident happened. So the selection of guides for many, many reasons is hugely important. And the idea of training them well to not go uh, rogue is going to protect your company. You should have some sort of provision in your guide agreement that they can only do what your itinerary says and that they're held responsible if they uh, create their own side itinerary, especially if they get paid. Well, sounds like a funny balance, an independent contractor that isn't an employee, and so they have the freedom to do X, Y, and Z, and yet needs to be within the boundaries of a certain legal, I guess. Right. Well, they, they can have the boundaries to do your trip, but that doesn't give them the boundaries to decide to suggest these other things that have nothing to do with your trip that you're um, advertising and selling. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I personally know a company that uh, got sued this year because of an injury that happened on the tour. I'm wondering if you have, and I, I mean, I know you do, uh, if you have if you have real life examples, not I don't need the nitty gritty, but of what it looked like in reality with an event happening and how that interplay of the tour operator's insurance plays out. Um, if it holds up, your waivers, your documents hold up, or things fall like a house of cards because the lawyer was great. Yeah. So um, first important part of the story is lawsuits are slow and take a long time. So when you get sued, if it happens to you, um, you're going to expect speedy resolution. And we're going to say it's the opposite. Like things that we do speedier three years and we think that was actually pretty fast. And you're like, oh, my God. But uh, your waivers typically hold up. So that's the good news in the U.S. Typically, you're going to be protected. Um, it's important when you have this uh, unfortunate situation arise where you've been sued. You got to hunker down. You got to keep everything. Please don't start you know, throwing out emails because that never looks good. Uh, get a lawyer involved and get a lawyer involved for a couple of reasons. Number one, because someone can give you better advice than you giving yourself. And number two, once you start sending emails out to the people in your company or to the guide or finding out what happened, when you have the lawyer copied on that email, it creates an attorney-client privilege to the email. So it's not readily uh, discoverable by the other side. I know it's kind of a like more of a legal talk than we want to have. But, you know, keeping stuff within the zone of the attorney-client privilege is really important post-accident. So even if you don't really love the idea of getting a lawyer involved, get one involved just to protect the privilege of the communication that's going to happen post-accident. Uh, have a good response plan. We, we didn't talk really much about that, but having a crisis response plan is an important part of being a tour company. Uh, sometimes you're forced into preparing one to get E&O insurance, but it's a really good idea to have a crisis plan because crises do happen. Um, by and large, as a tour operator, uh, when there's a lawsuit, you're going to be OK, because typically you haven't done anything actively negligent. So I had an example of a bus accident. It happened on a way back from a Disney trip for a school band headed back to Houston the driver had a medical emergency. The bus 
crashed down a ravine. The bus driver was killed. The kids and the band director were all injured, but not killed. And there were plenty of lawsuits going around, but the lawsuits went to the right place. They went to the bus company. A, a couple tried to hit the tour company, but the tour company had done nothing wrong. And so having indemnification provisions in some of your contracts with motor coach companies, talking to them about their level of insurance are going to be important. Remember, the riskiest thing that we do as a travel company is move people from point A to point B. We put them on buses, we put them on vans, we put them in little vehicles. Um, that's where the risk is. So when you're a travel company, spend extra time selecting your um, motor coach operators uh, for insurance and safety requirements. And don't be afraid to ask them, have you had accidents? Have you been sued? Because you need to know that because you need to be able to say that you selected a vendor based on asking good questions. That's that's fantastic advice. That's uh, a short round of questions uh, with that operator that ends up saving you uh, right. down the road in these situations. Um, it's excellent. Uh, two final questions. One is from somebody who says that they are living in Europe. They're an American. Uh, they want to register their company in America uh, and yet operate their tours uh, through Europe, multi-day tours. Um, does it matter where you live? Can you register yeah. your LLC yeah. and then that's where the company is? Yeah, great idea. Do it that way. Uh, sell to Americans through a U.S. company. Live in Europe. Uh, that gives you the benefit of making your choice of law being the U.S., not Europe. So you're excluding that whole package travel directive uh, malarkey that they call a law. And you set yourself up as a U.S. LLC you create U.S. facing terms and conditions that allow U.S. law to control selling to U.S. people. It just is different, though, if you are over in Europe selling to Europeans trying to hide under a U.S. company uh, because probably the package travel directive is going to gobble you up and you're going to have to comply with it if you're selling to Europeans. But if you're in Europe selling to Americans through your U.S. business with your U.S. law, in your U.S. E&O insurance, that's a great setup. Um, do you work with Australians much? Is there anything different about uh, that kind of group of operators, Australians, New Zealanders? Yeah, so um, I work with them less often. I have some clients in Australia. I have, thankfully, clients on six continents. So if you can guess the continent where I have no clients, you win the prize. I'll introduce you to some South Americans. It's no, well, Antarctica. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got nobody there. Why can't the <laughs> home office on Antarctica and hire <laughs> men so I can cross off all seven? Um, it's not structurally any different when you're dealing with Australian companies and New Zealand companies. Great. Final question in our lightning round, and thank you for uh, going through these. It is actually something that is is really interesting, I think, for everybody. It's about permissions required for photography on your website. And this particular case is an odd one because a uh, operator was threatened by a lawsuit with a woman who recognized her photo. She wasn't on the tour, but she recognized her photo on the website. And then she sued for a uh, model fee and use of her likeness. And it went into arbitration. Now, that's odd. But yeah. what isn't odd is using the likeness of your guests. Uh, through your that is pretty campaigns. common. 
um, two, you know, two ways to handle it. Uh, the simpler way is to embed it into your terms and conditions that unless you opt out and, and say you don't want to have your photo used, that it's okay to use. Um, some companies, and this is much more likely to be the issue with a student youth operator, uh, the rules are a lot different with children's identity. So if you're doing anything with respect to kids and minors under 18, you really need to be ab abundantly more cautious in the use of photography by having an actual written release signed for the use of the child's photo. It's not a very good idea to be using children's photos uh, online, as, as we know, for lots of reasons, unfortunately. But in the adult space, having it in, in your terms and conditions under a photo release section is uh, reasonable and upheld. One thing I do want to say about photos is be careful about the photos you put on your website to promote your trip to the Eiffel Tower, because if that photo of the Eiffel Tower that you found online is owned by somebody else's intellectual property rights, and you don't have permission to use that photo, you might get a scary letter one day uh, alleging a copyright infringement of the photo. So be careful about photos you pick to use on your website. Pay, pay the fee to get a license to be in a library of photos. So the, the license is a lot less expensive than the penalty later on. That I, I think that it's fair to say that goes also for copyrighted objects, art, art yes. installations, things that that have that claim as an object as well. Jeff, this has been fantastic. It is a rich and fertile obviously realm of of thought for our operators and i think uh in this hour that we've spent together you've lent a lot of clarity so a huge thank you for that i appreciate being here uh they are, they are important topics and i think that we we need to deal with them um for what they are but i don't think we need to make them more than what they are so don't be afraid of legal topics we can deal with them they're not that hard. It's not that expensive. And it, it like you started, you know, you should go to the dentist once a year. You should talk to a travel lawyer once a year just to make sure you're okay. Just like the dentist, you wait 10 years until you need 14 crowns and then it's a much bigger bill. Right. Um, Jeff, how and do you want your uh, audience listening to this to connect with your firm? Uh, the easiest way is our yeah, email, which is uh, jment, J-M-E-N-T, at mentlaw, M-E-N-T-L-A-W.com. Um, we're here. We answer questions all the time. We do give free legal advice occasionally, so you're not always just going to get a bill when you ask a question, because uh, I think we do believe in supporting our, our industry and community as well. Well, you've done that just by being here, and so thank you so much. Thank you, Mitch. It's been a great opportunity to talk about the law and travel. We'll have you back for another nine-part addendum to uh, our conversation. <laughs> great. Thank you very much.